1 Timothy chapter 6, we begin in verse 17 where Paul writes to Timothy, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention especially to the words of verse 17, and remember here how often we have placed an emphasis on the fact that a charge has been committed to Timothy, a charge that he in turn is to communicate to others. And now we have yet another and a final aspect of that charge when Paul says to him, verse 17, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. It might be tempting to look at this final part of Paul's charge to Timothy and say to ourselves, nothing to see here. This applies to rich people. Nobody in our little church family fits that category. We might as well skip these final verses of 1 Timothy and figure we've covered the entire epistle at least insofar as it applies to us. But on the other hand, if we're to step back and measure the riches of this world on a broader scale, that is, on a worldwide scale, then we might find ourselves actually qualifying for this final part of the charge after all. It was a number of years ago, I can't even remember the source, that I either read or heard that on a worldwide scale, the poorest class in America still ranks in the upper 1% of the world. Take that with a grain, I can't verify it, but uh, wouldn't surprise me to discover that that's very nearly the case, if not actually the case. America still ranks the upper 1% of the world when you make that comparison that broad. There may be something to be said for that statistic when you take into account whole nations in large portions of other nations that know poverty in ways that we can scarcely imagine. And if you compare the so-called homeless people that stand at the stoplight leading uh, the traffic out of Walmart... Uh, compare the people you see standing there every day and uh, take note at times uh, of the 
the gatherings they, they have with them, the material things they have with them, compare those to the poverty-stricken people in third world nations that you find sifting through the trash heaps in search of food, then I think you could conclude that there are many in this nation that would do well to take heed to this charge that Timothy is called on to give to those that are rich. There's another reason, though, for us all to take heed to this charge. We need to take heed to it because in these closing verses, Paul is not only speaking of the riches of this world, he's also addressing the matter of spiritual riches. Verse 19 speaks to us of laying up in store a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Storing up riches in this world does not amount to laying up in store a good foundation against the time to come. When you stand before the Lord at the time to come that's in view here, what you have in your bank account isn't going to be terribly important on that day. And you certainly won't be able to purchase your way into heaven or buy for yourself eternal life. The psalmist writes in Psalm 49, beginning in verse 5, Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil, when the iniquity of my heel shall compass me about? They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. You cannot buy your way into heaven. You cannot buy your neighbor's way into heaven. You cannot buy your children's way into heaven. This may be the very passage that Peter had in mind when he penned his words in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Oh, it takes something ever more precious than any of the riches of this world to redeem a soul. We make much, don't we, these days? You often hear it said, uh, you need to invest in gold and silver, this paper economy. Uh, you shouldn't put any stock in that. Uh, put your money into gold and silver, and yet gold and silver are referred to here by Peter as corruptible things. So in this closing charge that Paul gives to Timothy to pass on to others at Ephesus, we find Paul addressing the matter of the riches of this world as well as addressing the matter, uh, to borrow the phrase that Christ himself used in Luke 12 and verse 21, the matter of being rich toward God. We'll see in the course of this study that there can be and there should be a connection between the two. The riches of this world and being rich toward God. You can make a connection there. You can't buy your way into heaven. I'm not negating what I just said a moment ago. But we will see a little later that a connection can be made. 
and by comparing and contrasting the riches of this world and being rich toward God, you'll find yourself able to do something that I fear very few Christians are able to do these days. You'll find yourself cultivating a right attitude toward riches. A right attitude toward riches. And by riches, I'm speaking with regard to both the riches of this world and being rich toward God. You need to have the right attitude toward both. So that's my theme this morning. Cultivating a right attitude toward riches. The Christian must cultivate a right attitude toward riches. Again, the words of our text, verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. How then does the Christian cultivate a right attitude toward riches? Well, consider with me, first of all, he must resist the temptation to be high-minded. He must resist the temptation to be high-minded. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. Find it interesting to note um, a wide variety of ways that this term high-minded is translated in other modern English versions. Charge them not to be haughty, the ESV says. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, New American Standard. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, New International Version. And of course, I have to throw in my favorite paraphrase, the message. Listen to, way, to the way this is uh, translated. Keeping in mind now, this is not a literal rendering, but I think it captures the idea. Tell those rich in this world's wealth to quit being so full of themselves and so obsessed with money. Don't you love that? <laughs> that, that certainly captures... Uh, uh, the force and the meaning of the text. So you have haughty, conceited, arrogant, full of themselves. That gives you a pretty well-rounded idea of what it means to be high-minded. The authorized version in this case, I think, is the most literal translation of them all. The other versions take the added step of suggesting in their translations what being high-minded means. It means to be haughty, conceited, arrogant, full of yourself, if you will. There is, you see, a tendency in all of us to be self-sufficient when it comes to our attitude toward God. The fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was a fall into a sense of self-sufficiency. It was man and woman telling God that they could live just fine on their own. They didn't need anyone to rule over them. 
In the parable of the nobleman in the far country, Christ speaks of the nobleman's citizens who say, we will not have this man to reign over us. That's in Luke 19, verse 14. And that pretty much sums up man since his fall into sin. He thinks he can live independently of God. He thinks he is sufficient in himself to think highly of himself. And the more you have of this world's riches, the stronger that temptation becomes. The psalmist finds himself having to resist covetousness in Psalm 73. So we read beginning in verse 3, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain, violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness, they have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return thither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Oh, those may be the best words to describe the condition that I'm now bringing to your attention of being high-minded. And the thing to note from that psalm is not that the psalmist himself was rich with the world's goods, but that he was envious of those who were. He wished he could be high-minded as those in the world were who possessed the riches of this world. Now, Paul is very helpful to us when it comes to resisting the temptation of becoming high-minded, haughty, conceited, or arrogant. Notice, if you will, how Paul describes the nature of the riches of this world when he calls them uncertain riches. The other translations all agree with the authorized version in translating that word uncertain. Leave it to the message to add a little more by paraphrasing the statement this way, here today and gone tomorrow. Uncertain riches. Here today and gone tomorrow. And doesn't history prove this to be the case, whether it's on a personal level or a mass level? On a mass level, money itself can become worthless in a day. I think there's a general consensus that, as a nation, we're on a trajectory to see that happen. When the economy is inflated and prices rise and the government only knows how to move in one direction, which is to grow deeper in debt while spending more and more, it becomes inevitable that at some point, and I think history would verify this, the whole economy will crash. Oh, the riches of this world are indeed uncertain. And yet there is one aspect to the riches of this world that is certain. It is a matter of absolute certainty that when you die, 
You leave the riches of this world behind. Can't take any of it with you. Wouldn't do you any good if you could. This is why Christ told the parable of the foolish rich man in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning in verse 16. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? God views such a person with such a mindset as a fool. So we must, as Christians, resist the temptation to be high-minded. Those that become high-minded allow themselves to become too attached to the things of this world. The opposite, you could say, of being high-minded is being humble. May God help us to resist high-mindedness by being humble. Grace flows freely, you see, to those that are of humble spirits. Those that are high-minded find themselves stifling the grace of God and resisting God himself. But not only must we resist the temptation to be high-minded if we're going to cultivate a right attitude toward riches, but consider next that the Christian must trust in the living God. Can I ask somebody, John, would you, could you go bring me a couple of Kleenexes from somewhere? I'm up here sniffling while I'm trying to uh, consider God's word. And we come secondly to consider that the Christian must trust in the living God. Again, the words of our text, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Do you see how Paul, as his manner often is, gives us the, the, the positive precept following the negative prohibition? You're not to be high-minded. You're not to trust in uncertain riches. There's the prohibitions. There's the negatives. But here comes the alternative and this is so typical of Paul. He, he, he is very prone to give you both sides of the matter. But trust in the living God. Be not high-minded, but trust in the living God. And I love the emphasis that Paul places on God being the living God. Ah, uh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Hope John doesn't have to search too much longer. So, okay, excuse me. The emphasis on the living God. Where high-mindedness is found, or other manifestations of sin, 
God is at best the abstract God or the theoretical God or the academic God that we know about but no more. He's anything but the living God. This isn't the first time now in this epistle that Paul refers to him as the living God. Back in chapter 3, verse 15, he writes, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, Did you catch that? The church of the living God. We are gathered here today to worship the living God, the true and living God. Not a false God, not an abstract God, not a figment of our imaginations. The living God. In chapter 4, in verse 10, in 1 Timothy, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. And would you notice from this last verse how the reference is to Christ, who is the living God, the Savior of all men, especially those that believe. Could it be that Paul's use of this title, the living God, has to do with the truth that Christ is indeed risen from the dead? He is a risen Savior. He is a risen Lord. We're dealing with someone now that is true, that is real, that is actual, that is here, that is taking notice of what we're about here in this church today. This title is explained in more detail when Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 16, where he writes, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The emphasis in this verse is on the vitality that the presence of God creates in the hearts of those who believe in Christ. God dwells in them by his Spirit, and he walks in them, and he knows them, and they know him. Christ himself captures the meaning of walking in communion with the living God when he says in John's Gospel, chapter 10 and verse 14, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and and am known of mine. And a few verses later, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I wonder this morning, do you know God that way? Do you know him as the living God? Can you say that you hear his voice? He knows you, you know him, you're sensitive to his voice, and you follow him. Trusting in the living God, you see, is not trusting in some abstract idea about God, nor is it trusting even in an orthodox idea of God. The kind of trust Paul is envisioning here is the trust of fellowship or communion. It is the Christian's privilege to know God in a personal way 
And this personal knowledge or fellowship takes place through the Word of God, to be sure. But it goes beyond knowing of God through information that's gained through reading. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer and makes the Word of God a living word to the Christian soul so that you have a spiritual perception that enables you to discern the voice of Christ through his word and by his spirit. And when the Christian trusts in the living God, then something takes place in that Christian's life that is somewhat rare in this world when it comes to the material things of this world. Note what Paul goes on to say about the living God that the Christian is to trust. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, and then underscored, because this is so important, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. My, how that statement should govern your attitude toward the things of this world. The word richly, God who giveth richly to us all things to enjoy, that's the same word as rich, but in a slightly different form. And in this slightly different form, it's not describing the material things of this world, but it's describing the manner in which God gives the Christian all things to enjoy. He gives them to us richly. This statement becomes a very important one then in the matter of cultivating a right attitude toward riches. The Christian, you see, doesn't have to feel guilty about the things that God provides him with, not even the material things. I realize, of course, that that kind of mindset runs contrary to the mindset of the world. Worldly thinking reasons that everything in the world must be evenly distributed for each person in the world has an equal portion of the riches of the world. It's not fair for one to have more than another. So that reasoning goes. But in the case of the Christian, he has gained something that most people in the world don't have. He has gained contentment with the things that God gives him. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul says earlier in this chapter, back up in verse 6, chapter 6. In the verse previous to that, verse 5, Paul speaks of those who are of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. These are the ones that are high-minded and place their trust in uncertain riches. The Christian, on the other hand, realizes the truth of James 1 and verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. In his communion with the living God, you see, the Christian not only gains the things he needs in this world, but he also gains And this is something that's not sought out or not thought about very often. Not only does he gain the blessing from God, but he gains the very capacity to enjoy the blessings that he receives from God. 
There are so many in this world, you know, that have so much, so much more than others, and yet have no capacity to enjoy what they have. God giveth us richly all things to enjoy. In Hebrews 13 and verse 5, the Christian is admonished to let your conversation or your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. And then he gives a very compelling reason for being content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. This is how the Christian gains contentment. He sees that he has God and he has Christ. That makes you rich. You're a joint heir with Christ. You have gained life through Christ. Could anything be more valuable than to gain back a forfeited life? For what shall it profit a man, Christ asks in Mark 8, verse 36, if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So we cultivate a right attitude toward riches by realizing that no matter how much or how little we have of this world's riches, we have Christ himself, the living God. And that makes us rich, and that makes us able to enjoy whatever God sees fit to bestow on us of this world's goods. If God has bestowed on you a lot in terms of the world's goods, then thank him for it. But don't set your heart on those riches. Set your heart affection on Christ instead. And then recognize something else about the riches God bestows on you. And this pertains to your spiritual riches as well as your material riches. And it leads to my last point. If you would cultivate a right attitude toward riches, you must not only resist the temptation to high-mindedness and trust in the living God, but thirdly, finally, the Christian must see a purpose beyond himself as it pertains to his riches. The Christian must see a purpose beyond himself. Let me read verse 17 again, and this time I'm going to add verse 18 to it. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. And then note it here, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, I might as well go ahead and add verse 19. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Verses 18 and 19 show us that when God bestows blessings upon his people, he never intends for those blessings to terminate on his people. Christians are to become channels Channels through which the blessings of God flow. 
Channels only, the hymn writer writes, channels only, blessed master, but with all thy wondrous power flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. And would you note that the riches that flow to us and through us pertain as much to spiritual riches as to material wealth. Oh, material wealth should be shared. I still remember the message Reverend Bowman preached here a couple of weeks ago about the theology of work. Don't know that I've ever heard a message with that kind of title, and I thought he covered it very well. You remember the point he made that one of the reasons the Christian works is not merely to support himself and his family, but to enable him to be generous toward others as well. Generosity ought to characterize the Christian. One of my favorite passages on the topic of giving is found in the book of Acts chapter 3 and verse 6. That's the narrative of Peter and John entering the temple, taking note of a man laid at the temple gate who every day was placed there to beg for alms. Silver and gold have I none, Peter says to the lame beggar, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You know the story. He lifted the man to his feet, the man who hadn't been able to walk in many, many years, he goes leaping and prancing into the temple, praising the Lord. When I preached on that verse years ago in our studies in the book of Acts, I pointed out that based on that narrative and based on that text, there is no such thing as a Christian with nothing to give. You may not have silver or gold, Neither did Peter and John. But you have something way more valuable than silver or gold. You have the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means you have the message of eternal life. You have the message of sins forgiven and eternal life gained and assurance of heaven. You have that. And God never meant for such riches just to simply terminate on you. He intends that such blessings flow to you and then flow through you. And to the degree that you may use material riches from this world to seek out opportunities to disperse the spiritual riches that are yours, to that same degree you lay up in store for yourselves a good foundation against the time to come. Use your material riches toward a spiritual end when it comes to being generous. So do good and be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, verse 18. And don't those words take into account the use of your material riches as well as your spiritual riches? Distribute the material riches. Communicate the spiritual riches. Distribute the material ones. You should be 
ready to distribute, as I say, material riches, willing to communicate spiritual riches, and to the degree that you function as a channel for Christ's blessings, then verse 19 will apply to you, laying up in store for yourselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. That verse anticipates a time to come. That time is the day of judgment. To those that have been high-minded and have placed their trust in uncertain riches, they themselves may be saved, so as by fire, but all that was done to gain the goods of this world will go up in smoke. Better by far to hear the Savior's Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Matthew 25, 23. If you would hear such gracious and glorious words from Christ, then you must cultivate the right attitude toward riches. Oh, may you be given the needed grace then to resist the temptation to be high-minded while trusting in the living God who gives us all things to enjoy, recognizing that God lavishes good things on you, that you may see a purpose beyond yourself, even a purpose to distribute and to communicate. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence, we thank you that we are rich, that whatever we have or don't have of the world's goods, thou hast bestowed every spiritual blessing upon us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we are rich. And we thank thee, Lord, that when you saved us, you gave us the capacity to enjoy everything thou dost provide in the spiritual realm and in the material realm. We thank you, Lord, for the way thou hast blessed us materially. We thank thee, O Lord, for our jobs, for our incomes, for our food, for our shelter, for our transportation. O Lord, you have given us so many things. But Lord, most importantly, thou hast given us thyself. We have Christ. May we, therefore, like Paul, learn to be content in whatever state we find ourselves with regard to the goods of this world. And may we at all times be mindful of how bountifully blessed we are in thee. Lord, save us from being high-minded, Save us, O Lord, from setting our hearts on the riches of this world. And may we indeed consider that we are to be conduits through which the blessings of God flow to others. O Lord, make us those channels of blessing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.